everybody. This is Eric Krasno, and you are listening to the Plus One Podcast. I want to thank everybody that's been tuning in, everybody that's been sharing the show with your friends. I've been receiving so many great messages and so many great suggestions for guests, and uh, it's been really cool to connect with all of you guys. We've got some incredible guests coming up on the show, and today's show is one I've been really looking forward to. I want to give a shout out to Osiris Media. They helped me put this show together, but they also have a lot of great content that you can find at OsirisPod.com. So today I've got two incredible musicians on the show. Um, I'm a massive fan of both of these guys. Uh, Pino Palladino is one of my absolute favorite bass players of all time. Has played with D'Angelo. He actually was the bass player on the Voodoo album, which to me is one of the great R&B and soul albums um, really ever, but definitely of our time. But he's also played with so many incredible musicians. He was part of the John Mayer Trio with Steve Jordan. He uh, toured with The Who. He also toured with Nine Inch Nails. I mean, he can do pretty much anything. Um, And if you're a bass player, you already know this guy. So I was really excited to talk with him. But uh, we're also joined by Blake Mills, who's not only an incredible guitarist and vocalist and songwriter, but is one of my favorite producers out there today and he's been involved in some of my favorite albums that have come out recently he produced sound and color by the alabama shakes darkness and light by john legend uh the perfume genius albums the last two records which i've loved um he's worked with so many other people he was part of the group dawes and has made really great solo albums as well he has four albums out um break mirrors hey ho look and mutable set which came out in 2020 but the reason we have them both on the show today is that they made a collaborative album that just came out on march 12th it's called notes with attachments and i've been listening to it for the last few weeks i absolutely love the album Um, I love the sounds on the album. I love the compositions. And uh, it wasn't what I expected at all, but in the best possible way. So we're going to get into how they made this record and what brought them together initially. And we also dive into their solo projects and their careers as a whole. So I'm really excited to get into this conversation. First, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. A legend of the bass guitar who's played with all of my heroes and on countless classic albums, and one of my favorite young guitar players who's becoming one of the greatest producers out there. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome today's Plus Ones, Blake Mills and Pino Palladino. Well, I just wanted to jump into the album and what happened, you know, in, in, for for A, in the studio, but also how you guys linked up and uh, like decided to make this record. Well, we, um, we got together for the first time when, uh, I was working with John legend, right. Um, uh, on a record of his and, um, part of the, uh, vision for that was to have a, a, a live rhythm section. Um, and, uh, so immediately Pino and Chris Dave came to mind and that was the first time I got to, um, be in a room with either of them. Right. Right. And, uh, and Pino and I just hit it off real quick. Um, I think on, on like a, a musical level and then also maybe process in the studio of like really taking time to, to be able to craft something and, and not just wanting to capture, you know, whatever happens first, you know, every time, which can be great, but it's, it's also sort of nice to have some, some time to, to, to really sit down and try things and experiment and, and, um, and tinker with stuff. And so in a, in a, in a way that, that probably informed the process of working on, you know, music, um, together, you know, it was an extension of that, like being able to, uh, just try things and, and, uh, Absolutely. see how far we can push, uh, an idea before we, we, we both kind of come to the realization that uh, maybe it's not a very good one. <laughs> think right. <of> something, <laughs> try something else. Yeah. We go a long way down that path before we come to that. Yeah. I can hear that on the record and there's so many moments where I scratch my head in the best possible way. Cause I'm trying to figure out 
How did they get that sound? You know, what went into this? And I'm so curious at some point to see like the list of pedals and, and different methods that happened. I know that you guys messed around with some MIDI with Larry Golding, sending things to different instruments. Um, and uh, yeah, I can hear that experimental kind of freedom informing the music. And I'm, I'm curious, like, um, how much of the compositions were were set when you guys started and, and what that process was like to the finish line? A lot of this stuff, you know, you, you, you had been working on in sort of various stages over the course of the last um, decade, you know, with some of this music, right? Absolutely. It's case by case. There's some songs that, that yeah. I think you, you really had developed um, as a composition. Uh, you know, with melody and changes. And then there's other stuff that is on this album that really would seem to derive from like nights where, where, where Pino and Chris might be hanging out at his place in London and, and just kind of, um, you know, playing a beat and a bass line and they had tracked that and Pino had kind of earmarked it and set it aside for, for something later, not knowing what. That's kind of where the notes with attachments concept yeah from, right actually the first thing that happened was while well, me and blake were doing something with john legend in new york to promote the record that, that i'd worked on with blake um i booked a a couple of hours in the studio in brooklyn with ben kane who was helping me out works for d'angelo he's a great engineer from i new love york. i've known ben forever that's that's my my guy there you go yeah, yeah. yeah. we love him yeah um uh, he he had booked a studio and i I'd arranged to meet Chris over there and um, Marcus and Blake. And, and I think that was the first time Blake worked on, on any of my tunes. So that was the first uh, thing. And then later on, um, you know, we had obviously talked about possibly working on the record for me. And then when I played Blake some tunes, we started talking about it. And that's, that's how we got into it. I just played him some sort of stuff I'd been carrying around for for a number of years on my hard drive yeah right right and blake when you heard that stuff was it initially like i would love to work with you on this stuff was it um what was your what was your reaction um to those initial tracks i think our 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 initial conversation was sort of i'd be honored to work on this music but it was also like but how do we how do we keep it from being you know a certain thing how do we keep it from just being a a, you know, background music or something like that or you know what, what what where could this go i've been carrying this stuff around for a long time not really knowing how to approach doing a full record i knew that uh, actually i knew more what i didn't want to do interesting yeah sense. yeah absolutely. There's, there's a lot i didn't want to do I was, no i ain't going down not going down that road. i don't know where i'm going um but when i met blake and we talked about it got into it and it started to it started to be a really interesting um, proposition for me right right um a lot of the songs have kind of movements to them and and they take you different places um how much of that was mapped out and how much of that evolved in the studio and as you found the sounds um that created the record no, that's all me. Everything. Everything yeah. you hear is all me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I'm yeah. joking. I'm joking. No. Um, uh, yeah, it varies from track to track. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes, as Blake mentioned, um, I had a, you know, a whole concept of a tune with, with melodies in place and, yeah. you know, pretty much constructing. And other times it was literally just a one chord groove or just a loop of something really interesting that we just worked on. Yeah. until we found something really interesting and and um and then blake just had su such amazing ideas on where we could go with this stuff that really op opened me up to possibilities that i wouldn't have um you know really seen foreseen right uh, without him so yeah the combination was was really pretty cool i in fact i'd like to ask you blake a little bit about that because i've kind of gone down the rabbit hole in the past few days on your productions, the recent ones, but also going back to, I guess, you know, 2014, 15, 
I think I said earlier, there's some, a lot of moments where I'm scratching my head to figure out what you're doing. And I'm so curious, um, your method in terms of finding these sounds and how um, kind of that search will then kind of influence the song and the composition. And, uh, you know, when how you kind of developed that style, even though the style, it, it's more of a, it's a broad style, but... Um, um, kind of what your inspirations as a producer and how you got into that. And it was, it, was it fiddling around with pedals? Were you always like obsessed with sounds and effects and stuff like that? I think the, the shift from being a session player to being a producer was pretty natural to me in that I was, I was probably a pretty overbearing uh, band member, right? right. <laughs> you know, or a person to have on a session. It's like, initially it was like, you know, being in a band and having that sort of democratic uh, platform where, you know, it, it seems like it's welcome. The idea of telling somebody, Hey, I have an idea for what you should play. It's like this welcome. It's all open, but, but you know, the reality of that, especially when you're 16 or 17 is like, you know, it doesn't go down well. No. <laughs> you know, you push somebody down, down the road of like, no, I think you should play this. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's tricky. It's tricky. Super tricky. Blake, when you were, uh, when you were a kid, were you really curious about records and making records or, or what did you like kind of realize you wanted to be a producer once you were actually in a studio and able to experiment? I think like the the thing that drew me into listening to records, um, part of it was just fantasizing about, you know, what was going on in that room. Like the, the records that I, that I fell in love with were ones that I felt transported by to, to the room where the record was, if it was a more naturalistic kind of, you know, like a sixties jazz recording or something, it, you, you feel like you're in the room with the musicians or if it's something a little more, um, psychedelic it you know you feel like you're in this other other world or in a dream or something so there's this uh, transportative quality to listening to music that i think has a lot to do with the joy of making records for me is trying to craft something you know like that whether it's capturing the realism of a of, of something that's that's happening or creating something sort of surreal uh, from, from those elements with this specific record, um, were there moments where a particular sound um, changed the scope of the song completely? Yeah, definitely. There was, um, well, the way that um, the track Jerkle came about was, uh, um, I think, Pino, you had, you had searched uh, in vain to try to find an, this instrument called Jerkle. Yeah. But, that's a, like a, a West African one string cousin to the Ngoni, yeah. the jelly Ngoni. Uh, yes. That's tuned down and, and, and you couldn't find one. So you, you sort of approximated the sound of the instrument on, on like a P bass that was just, you know, DI P bass and double tracked. And you had this line that you played that was sort of like Jerkolesque. And yes, Jerkolesque. Uh, like and and so um and so like but it was played so well and it had such a vibe to it that um uh i remember seeing if we if we could just manipulate it with uh plugins or with an effect to make it sound more acoustic Absolutely. Um, and uh and i think i used altiverb like the one of the settings that like i that sort of gimmicky on altiverb is like the glass jar or like the, the djembe, they do like a, um, a what do they call it? A impulse response of uh, the inside of a, of a, a mason jar. And, uh, and then, you know, when you, they've got some algorithm from that, that, that um, you know, makes anything sound like you're, <laughs> you're listening to it, you know, for glass jar or something like that. Uh, and, and I'm sure there's a practical use for that, but uh, I don't think they had this, in mind necessarily but it, what it did was it made it sound like it had that like this you know this this p bass um line it, it made it sound like it was resonating through a, a small uh body which is kind of like the missing 
the good. The missing piece. Yeah, right, the gourd. Right, right. I really love how there's like, you guys use pretty much all very organic sounds, but totally fucked them up on the record. Um, and I, I also read that, that some of the demo, that you actually use elements of some demos using like isotope to kind of like um, take out certain elements and, and preserve certain things um, where there are a lot of kind of like referencing uh, demos or using, you know, elements of what you originally had, or did you mostly kind of just sprout new, you know, new sonic ideas out of the original, you know, composition? Well, that was just one song actually where, right, where right. we found a use for Isotope. Yeah. Which was, um, you know, I had a demo that, um, of a song that I'd done a long time ago and Jack Schwartz had put a brilliant horn arrangement on it. And when I called Jack, Jack to see if we had the original track so that I could get the horns separate from the, the demo track. He said he couldn't remember where he did it. You know, he did, the, the guy whose studio it was didn't still have the same machine. So anyway, we were just left with his two track. Um, so that's how that one came about. So it wasn't really like saying, let's use Isotope to see if we can find something really interesting. It was more a case of necessity to just try and get the horns separate from the kind of... Um, deep sounding drum machine that I'd used on the demo. But in that process, we also found that by isolating the horns, we, we kind of pulled through some of the other stuff. Some of the residue came with it, right, right. Um, which was really cool sound of the guitars and basses that I put on kind of in the distance. They're just sort of messed up, really added to the atmosphere. So we ended up using a lot of that stuff in the track too. Uh, there was a few specific sounds that I was like really curious about on, uh, I think it was, Ecoute, there's like a sound. Is there? Is that the clavinet that's making that really muted string sound? Uh, there is a clavier on it. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. I yeah. love that sound and the panning on that song of like all these rhythmic things um, created like this really really cool vibe. Um, and I, that one you can definitely hear the the Fela inspiration and Chris's drumming is like epic on that one. Blake, have you were you a Fela fan? Yeah, absolutely. There were many instances on this record where there are references to things that like I, I've I've heard and have been a fan of and love, but but I'm working with you know guys like Chris and Pino who who have an understanding of of the music and the composition from those references that's like so deep that I feel but there's a little bit of imposter syndrome, for, you know, to like, you're like, oh yeah, Fela, definitely, you know, I'm a big fan. I don't have a a, um, a long history with um, with a lot of the Kuti stuff, like a deep a deep history with it. But I do have, um, like, you can measure the on um, like a, if there was something to measure joy, definitely the needle would be moving in the up <laughs> direction yeah. immediately. You know, anytime. Anytime uh, I'm listening to to that music, there's a nice, there's like a live at the Roxy, I think from the sixties that um, a friend of mine turned me on to. And, and that was maybe the first time I, I came in contact with a recording that I was like, oh, okay, this is my, this is my way in. And that happened while we were working on this record actually. Uh, so it was sort of a really, oh, that's really amazing. timing. Yeah. But you know, Blake, what you brought, you brought something different to it. Um, yeah, your approach to playing on a song like this was, was unique. You know, the sort of fuzz guitar thing that you did and, and the breakdown section that you came up with really, I mean, obviously it's inspired by Fela, but I think it, um, it's a very different take on it. And, and it's more of a journey. It's not just a one-chord groove. It takes you through a lot of different atmospheres and stuff. So, you know, I think, yeah, I just want to let you know you brought a lot to that track, man. Oh, thanks. Yeah, there's just such a different. Um, I, that's what I think. That's what makes this record so unique is that I can hear both of your influences so strongly. I know Pino, you've been, you know, you know, you're in heavily influenced by African music, but along with like Motown and so many different things in your playing. Um, so yeah, hearing hearing it come together, and then Blake, I feel like the sonicness. <laughs> Um, on so many levels is uh, makes it so unique. And uh, I, I wanted to also 
dive in a little bit to the horns and the horn arrangement. Because I know Sam Gendel, Jacques is on there, Marcus Strickland. Were there were these pretty mapped out? You know, and it's specifically the sound they bring is so unique too. A lot of distorted horns, a lot of like um, bass tones. Were they were they like heavy handed in their work, or were you guys kind of mapping out what they were going to do? Each track is almost like a completely right unique approach to uh, to to horns in a way. You know, I'm sure Jacques wouldn't mind me saying this, but the, the approach that Roy Hargrove brought to um, D'Angelo, uh, Voodoo, and Erica's albums and Common's albums right. during that period that we were all working together, I think Jacques took that on and just did the you know what Roy was doing with the with his instrument, Jack did it with saxes and came up with the amazing arrangement on, uh, on, on sound walk, which, you know, looks back to Duke Ellington, but, but also looks to Roy Hargrove as well. And, and then Marcus Strickland came in and played on Cootie. And, um, if I remember correctly, Chris had spoken to him on the phone and said, make sure you bring your bass clarinet. Yeah. So he brought that and, uh, and just came up with those lines. You know, if you use players as brilliant as these guys, they're going to come up with great shit. Right. That's the point. Right. Um, And with Sam, I mean, Sam brought a whole other thing. I I didn't know anything about Sam. Blake introduced me to him. And first time I met Sam was at the studio when we worked on Just Wrong. And once I heard Sam doing that, you know, those incredible voicings and just his whole take on the track, I was so knocked out. So, um, you know, all these guys brought their you know, their heart and soul to the music and really gave it. Um, and your bass tone is so unique on this record. It's a lot of, I mean, you pretty much play fretless on most of the record, right? Yeah, I guess I do. I never thought about that. But yeah, yeah, there's a lot more fretless on this than I have been playing for quite a while. Right. Well, I went back to the 80s to revisit your some of your early stuff. And I think we spoke a little bit about um, the Paul Young track with the, the fretless on there. And uh Kind of that was kind of your. I, I feel like that was a signature in the in your beginning in the beginning years. And I was curious if if fretless was when you first picked up bass. Did you gravitate to the fretless pretty quickly? Yeah, absolutely, I did because I started playing bass officially. I guess around about nineteen seventy seven, seventy six, or seventy seven. And I was really uh, I was intrigued because I had seen Danny Thompson. Who was an upright bass player who played with Pentangle and John Mott. Yeah, incredible. Still, st- I still love Danny. He's, he's an amazing musician. Um, so I was lucky enough to go to a school with a school concert to see Ralph Mattel playing. He's a folk singer. Streets of London yeah, was yeah. his big hit. Um, and, and Danny Thompson was playing with him. I guess I was about 11 or 12 before I even played an instrument. So I was really impressed. I didn't even know what that thing was that Danny was playing, but I was so impressed by it. So that kind of went into my um, musical, you know, my, my whatever you want to call it. So it, I think it was only a matter of time before I wanted fretless, wanted to play a fretless bass. Yeah. Um, just because of those slides and stuff I'd seen Danny do, you know, it was so incredible. And then, of course, Jacko's album was around that time, too. So, yeah, I did. Uh, you know, I had a fretted bass, and I think within a year I bought a fretless. Um, I had a fretless Fender Precision, which I eventually changed, swapped for a Kramer fretless bass, which sounded awful. <laughs> and then, yeah, it wasn't great, actually. And a metal neck, and it was really cold. Oh, yeah. um, but, you know, you do these crazy things when you're young. You just swap guitars, and you forget you left amps and all that kind of nonsense but yet but then i didn't really play fretless bass very much um until i got a call to play with gary newman so i would have to credit gary with giving me the chance to kind of express myself through through the fretless bass a lot of us know your work from as you as you mentioned the voodoo and like kind of soul quarians years um and like the p bass with the flat wounds and there's there's kind i mean I'm going to nerd out for a second and and say that I think since that time period, there's like a movement um, of like studio musicians that will actually say, what would Pino do? You know, it's like kind of, uh, wow. so, <laughs> there's like, there's been many sessions that I've been a part of where that is, that that's mentioned, but in one specific one that came full circle, I was working with uh, Tedeschi Trucks Band. And we were kind of putting down demos and writing songs for a record called Made Up Mind. And then I left to go on tour and he was like, I played bass on the demos, you know, because I was just there. 
the we were both like, man, what would Pino do? And then you actually played on those those songs, which one, <laughs> yeah. which, which I you played on a couple songs that I wrote with Derek, and he sent me those, and it was like a a come to God moment that you you know you you that you played on those and what you played, and then <laughs> after that, I ended up you know, kind of, I was, I was around, my tour was over. I ended up playing bass on the road with them for like four or five months and had to learn your parts from that record. So it was not only the, what would Pino do? Then I had to learn what Pino did, um, (laughs) which was not, not easy. And there was some great moments in there where like your approach to that was, was, was amazing. But, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about those years and, you know, the voodoo record and you know how you connected with D'Angelo and h- how that whole like group of musicians kind of came together. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, first of all, let me say that's exactly what I used to do when I started playing. I would think, what would Anthony Jackson do here, or what would Chuck Rainey do here? So right. I, I think it's a natural thing for musicians to, to just you know just to give them a little bit of confidence in what they're doing. You think, well, you know, if I do what Anthony would have done, or or what Chuck would have done, or James Jameson. Or try to do that anyway. Yeah. That, you know that gives you a kind of in into the music. So I totally get it, and, and it's a huge compliment that that you would even say that that people would think like that. So the the voodoo era, um, the neo soul, as they call it now. Yeah. I mean, to me, it was just funk. It was just soul, funk, jazz, everything all mixed together. Um, I, I met D'Angelo on a BB King date I was doing in New York. And he had come in to sing a duet with BB. Wow. Uh, the album was called Deuces Wild. Um, and long story short is we just hit it off. You know, as soon as he sang, I kind of, uh, it informed me on how to play behind him. Yeah. And he obviously felt that too. And that led us to, it led to him inviting me to the studio to hear some of his, uh, the stuff he was working on, which was, you know, unbeknown to me at the time was voodoo. Um, yeah, so that's how that all came together. And once I played on a few things with D, then I got to play with Erica and Carmen and Talib Kweli and Bilal. Everybody it was a huge family at Electric Lady. Yeah. Um, yeah, like a collective. So it was such a wonderful thing for me, having been playing for so long and then suddenly to find myself in this amazing musical situation. Uh, we're very open-minded people, and yeah, it was fantastic. Great times. And when you were working on that record, um, I know that I, Questlove was on the show, and we talked extensively about this this time period and and this record, and kind of how everyone was influencing each other. I know Jay Dilla was one of D'Angelo's favorite producers, and his kind of feel, um, along with D'Angelo's you know, kind of concept of feel, uh, really influenced that record. And like the, 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 the sense of time that you and Questlove, you know, found with each other was so unique on that record and this, and the sounds and that's Russ and all of you guys. Um, but what, did that come pretty naturally or were you like listening to, um, you know, these kind of off kilter rhythms, um, and trying to to cop it or did you guys just go in and and just naturally start playing to what d'angelo was kind of directing when i first met d um i, I knew nothing about jay dillo or jd yeah as he was known yeah, at that time. time yeah but i did remember d mentioning slum village um but i didn't know much about it um yeah and, and you know i see i see them as slightly different actually i mean dillo's approach um the way he made beats and put the stuff together is just unique and genius. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. Incredible. And, you know, I'm not sure how much that informed D'Angelo. I think D'Angelo has always played behind the beat. Right. His whole thing is behind the beat. And, you know, if you look back historically, there's always been back phrasing in music, right? Yeah. Back to Duke Ellington and Count Basie, the horn sections would put phrase behind the beat. And, you know, it's been going on for a while. That's true. Um, so I think, although I think uh, Dilla definitely informed the music, I think D was was probably in that place anyway. Right. Um, right. And when I first got to play on some of the songs with D and Amir, 
he just said to me, look, I want, I want the bass. I want to feel the bass back, you know? So I, I just hung back on it. And he went, no, I mean, like, really back. <laughs> <laughs> and then I sort of I allowed myself to get to that spot, that place rhythmically. And it just felt really comfortable. And I was like, wow, this, is, this, is, this feels really unique. You know, it was, uh, yeah, it, it felt very natural to answer your question. Yeah. Only in that setup. I mean, it's only worked really because the way Amir plays drums, his timing is, is just fantastic. And, you know, me and D can sit behind that beat. Right. But if the drummer, if the drummer tries to be sympathetic to what we're playing, it's not going to work. Yeah. So there has to be some tension there rhythmically. And I, I think the reason it felt so comfortable was those two guys were so used to playing with each other. And I just had to fit in. Right. Well, that combination has become kind of a legendary uh, combination. When you guys were making that record, did you have, did you know at that moment how, um, influential it would be no but i must say i did know how incredible it was i right. just didn't right. know whether people would get it or not i right. just thought this you know maybe a lot of a lot of people would just think this sounds a bit messed up but but yeah. but to me i knew it was something special yeah yeah i mean a lot of people were thrown off by it i think initially um but then it was the embraced obviously now considered one of the great records of the last you know 20 years and and it all and a lot of the music from that era, like the you know the RH Factor, which I know you played on, and all the uh, Mama's Gun. It was an incredible time period. Yeah, for me too. Yeah, and it was just it was so effortless out there. You know, that's that was one of the things I remember about that period too. It just whenever we got together, we never really worked on anything more than you know, like it was always like the first or second take on all that stuff. Just it was just it was just happening. The energy was with us. We'll be right back after this short break. Blake, I wanted to go back to you for a second. I feel like there's a connection here with both of you guys through Derek Trucks. I actually spoke to Derek yesterday because I was trying to get this story straight. And uh, he informed me a little bit on it, which is uh, that I first heard you at the Crossroads Fest in New York City. Um, I think I was with Derek and we were talking to a few people and on the side of the stage, which I hate because I mean, you generally, I'm always wanted to just be listening, but and we were talking and you started playing sleepwalk and we all kind of stopped dead in our tracks and said, who is, you know, who, what, and we both like, we all came over and watched and were completely mesmerized um, by your playing and uh, have, I've followed you pretty much ever since. But then when we were leaving, uh, Derek, because I was like, oh, I'd never heard him play. And, you know, what do you know about him? And uh, he told me this story. And I was curious if you knew about this. But um, he got an email from Eric Clapton. Uh, I, there was a song. And I found out yesterday when I spoke to him what it was. It was from, it was from a show called Big Love. And it was Natalie Maine from the Dixie Chicks version of God Only Knows. And the outro, or I guess throughout that song, you're playing Slide. And Clapton emailed Derek and said, is this you? It's so good. And Derek then like researched and figured out that it was you and emailed him back saying, no, that was Blake, Blake Mills. You should check him out. And I don't know if that is what in turn, uh, you know, connected you with, with Clapton. Um, but I was curious if that was the case. I'm sure. I'm sure it did. And what's funny about that is I became aware of Soul Live through being a fan of Derek's. Oh, really? When I was younger, yeah. I mean, I wow, okay. when I, I first heard Derek, I, it was it was through the context more from live bootlegs than records because there weren't that many Derek Trucks band records out. You know, I was like on Kazaa every day after school, just like widespread panic and and uh soul live and frog legs and it's just as a as an offshoot of my affinity for the allman brothers band and i was i was particularly in love with slide guitar um around that age 13 14 
I had gotten an injury on uh, my hand had fractured a finger and so I was in a splint and then that's when I started to just uh out of frustration using the splint as the slide. Wow, really? Okay. And then started to kind of look up music that had slide guitar in it, electric and acoustic. Right. So yeah, I just got really uh fixated on um this this whole crew of, of uh, musicians who were um playing in each other's bands and collaborating and and stuff and uh but back to that that track i remember um i remember uh that that was a session that uh, rick rubin produced and one of them had mentioned either rick or, or natalie had mentioned that uh, her father was a, a gospel uh, steel player and uh and so i was kind of trying to do my best you know Aubrey Derek, Aubrey Gant, Mahalia, Licks, you know, just trying to, trying to interject some of those, um, those phrases in there. And then when I heard, I think maybe it was through, I think it was from Eric. I think Eric may have written me a, sent me a letter or, or an email and, uh, and, and said, you know, I just heard this and I thought it was Derek. And, and I went back and find the track myself because I had never heard the final version because it was a TV show. Oh, really? Yeah, so I was right, like, right, I had to right. YouTube it and listen to it. And then, you know, of course, in doing so, it's just sort of like sweating and bright red and just thinking like, oh my gosh, you know, like, <laughs> but, uh, but that's really sweet. And I mean, in the, the Crossroads thing was the first time I'd ever gotten to play with Derek. Um, it was that night, you know, the, the, wow. at the show. Yeah, well, I you, I was completely blown away. I mean, it's rare to me, rare for me to hear other guitarists that com- that completely stop me dead in my tracks and just stop it. You know, I'd and uh, that that night we were all blown. You had like eight guitar. We were there was like a hundred guitar players on the side of the stage, you know. But we all like seven or eight of us. I just were like wow this dude oh, no. is amazing <laughs> it's so sweet i i i there was a i have a memory of of crossroads festival um and like thank god this didn't make it on the dvd or whatever but like i had i was just sort of like i don't know what i'm gonna do they i'll play sleepwalk and and uh and I can do, you know, a cover of Save the Last Dance and like, but I don't have any songs of my own that seem to work for this, you know, um, this application. They want me to, you know, play in this sort of like transitional slot while they're setting up another band on the stage. Like, I'll just try this new song that I'm working on, you know. I'll just see how wow. it goes over at, at Madison Square Garden. <laughs> yeah. And, sold out yeah, Madison Square yeah. Garden. Yeah. Like refused to put any more thought into it other than like the initial idea of like, oh yeah, that that'll work. And so I remember like like getting like halfway through the intro of this song and I'm just playing by myself and realizing like, oh my gosh, this is a terrible idea. It's like slow. I barely, I've only played this song a few times before. Like the lyrics probably weren't even done at that point. And, uh, and I might've just been trying to prove something to myself, but all I know is, is like, I almost blacked out cause it was just so it was not going the right way, you know? And, and like with slide, right. you know, Pino, we talked about this in, in context of, um, fretless when you were playing, when there's nothing to base it off of, when there's no pitch center and you're just, you know, out there without a rope, things can go yeah. horribly, horribly wrong. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in, in a in a microtonal, uh, sour way. And I just remember like having that kind of like bad dream, uh, you know, uh, showing up to class in in your bath towel, kind of. Uh, yeah. Uh, anxiety that night but it was also you know it, it really was dreamlike because it was mixed in with meeting like a dozen of my favorite guitar players all in that one place that i do remember that that night that it was the hang was absolutely epic and i, I actually met a bunch of people that that day that i'm still you know pretty close with i i actually didn't honestly realize at that time too that you were such a great singer um, and, but you know, after that, I, I, I guess your, the break mirrors album came out maybe a couple years after that or a year after that. No, no, I think it was, 
Well, let's see. What what year festival was that? I think 2013 was the Crossroads. So I had put out my first record, um, uh, I think 2010. Then my second record came out uh, 2014. Or- oh, so Hey Ho came out 2014. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got a little. I got there a little bit late is to the party. But uh, I, I, did you grow up singing, or or was like the guitar first, and then you developed your voice? Yeah, no. I mean, I I, I didn't start singing. Um, I th- one of the first bands that that I had was when I was in. Uh, uh, I guess this would be high school, and um, and it was a songwriting partnership with. Uh, right, right. a guy named Taylor Goldsmith and we had a band together right. called Simon Dawes. Actually funny story. I remember uh Taylor's dad uh, playing voodoo for me and oh, saying wow. yeah saying like this guy is like this bass player is so behind the beat he's practically playing the last song. <laughs> 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 and his dad is, is is a sick musician. Uh Lenny Goldsmith, he sang in Tower of Power in the 80s and Oh, and uh, shit, had a, wow. had a band with uh, with Frosty, the drummer Frosty, uh, called uh, Sweat Hog, and and uh, oh shit, and a group called Creation. He was sick. He, uh, you know, who he played with was uh, Gerald Johnson. Gerald Johnson, oh, okay. the bass player in Steve Miller Band. They had they had a group yeah, together, yeah. and Gerald was like one of the first guys that I got to play with, you know, on the instrument of, of that ilk, and like really just a star bass totally. player who just had total control of the song. That was the first right. time I, you know, I'd ever interacted with a, a musician that could do something like that. And, uh, but so for singing, I had always deferred to Taylor because he could sing, he could sing so well from such an early age that it was like a given. It was sort of un, it, it was this tacit agreement that was like, I will stick the guitar and you will sing everything. I don't even think I sang background vocals until, um, you know, it was like out of absolute necessity. As I started to write more and more, the songs started to um, go from just like, you know, uh, the songs more or less about nothing or just trying to sound like our, our idols to writing about things that were more personal in that kind of adolescent way of, you know, just trying to like blush some emotional stuff out you know some teenage angst or whatever and there's this material that doesn't necessarily make sense for somebody else to sing something about that didn't quite feel right uh, i think to 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 either of us eventually i sort of felt kind of like forced into um figuring out how to sing and it didn't i don't think it came to me you know like I'm sure I'll still feel this way in a few years from now, like it's this, you know, it's a journey, but, um, I mean, I don't even think that I, by my second record had really figured out how to, how to sing, you know, like how to be in control of what I was doing. Um, and it's, it's just this, it's, it's interesting. Like as a musician, people talk about finding your own voice. Um, and, uh, and how difficult that is because you, you actually have a lot of control over what you sound like as a, as a musician, as a, as a, a guitar player, for example. But as a singer, you, you really, uh, it, you're, you're, you're limited by what you actually sound like, your actual right. voice. You know, there's only so much yeah. about it that you can change. It's kind of an interesting, um, an interesting path to be on. I, I had a very similar, I mean, I didn't sing till the last like eight, seven or eight years. And I wrote songs with singers for so long. I was always in bands or working on records. I got to work with Susan and Nigel and all these amazing singers that were so much better than I would ever be. And it wasn't until I made a record where I initially like sang the demos and tried to get a lot of different singers to sing on them. And Susan was one of the people who was like, no, 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 no. You're just going to sing and you're going to leave these. Uh, she's like, I'll, I'll sing on this, but you, you, you're, you should. Sh-. But at that point I had no idea key, like what keys or where it was going to feel right. And still like figuring that out to this day. And I think that's something that I'll always have to figure out. But, um, 
The interesting thing about it is then going on tour and figuring out that you have to treat your body so differently to perform. And then if you can't hear yourself, that same thing of like being, you know, naked, all of a sudden, you know, you're just, you know, on a guitar, even if you can't hear yourself, you can see where you're going. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and, uh, that, that adds another, a whole other layer of, of, uh, insecurity. I know. I know. <laughs> you know it's like insane. When, when did you kind of decide to focus on production? Um, and was it because the gigs were, were coming and you decided that, you know, you and you in, enjoyed that as much or more than being on the road? I think the, well, I had, I had kind of started to develop a distaste for, touring um in the context of the band uh of simon dawes but the nature of touring that we were doing was um you know was was in a van um chasing a bus you know being an opener that had played into my decision to step away from the band but i went from that into doing session work and also uh some touring work for hire but the the nature of touring for hire um for me was was you know being on that bus and 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 it just being a little less uh chaotic and and less responsibility in a lot of ways you know you're not worrying about taking a shift of the drive in the van at six in the morning you know or or uh, or, or stressing about whether people bought tickets and are going to even be at the show and it was just a little more like you could sit back and and really think about the gig and the music and what you were bringing to it and so i did that for a little while about two or three years and uh and i think i just kind of overdid it you know um yeah this was my early 20s so uh by the time i was like 23 or 24 uh i think i had really started to come to fall in love with being in the studio for a number of reasons. Like you've got all your gear and your toys and things uh, at hand and you can really spend time um, trying to get the best version of something or the best result. Whereas with, with live, the beauty is that it, it's just whatever ends up happening that night. And you, you don't really have a whole lot of control once the show starts of like what's going on. You just sort of, you know, things are sort of moving through you. But in the studio, there's some of that happening with respect to the take. But there's also like beauty in knowing that like, we're probably going to try another take and get, you know, some context as to whether like that take was, was really, really good and really special, or if the second one is better. You know? And if it's better, maybe we'll do a third and like, just keep doing it until they stop getting better. So there's a, there's just a different process uh and i felt a little more i don't know i just felt drawn to to that aspect of it and the production Uh, side of it came from actually um somebody that i worked with sarah watkins just calling and asking if if i would be up for um uh, producing her record i mean i i had produced my own uh solo record but i had never produced anybody else's um thing before Uh you know so that was really kind of her instigating it and did you have mentors or or even producers that you looked up to that that kind of helped you on that on that journey absolutely um first and foremost uh tony berg who was the producer for the simon dawes record but also like you know the first probably 50 sessions that i ever did um were for records that he was producing at his uh, home studio in his backyard. I think I fell in love with the, the sort of search for interesting sounds in his studio uh, with him working on, on those records. And uh, most of the other producers at the time that I can remember doing sessions for were not quite as, it was not so, um, I think I had to say this. Well, I guess the nature of a home studio is you, as, as we all know, um, is you, you do focus on the individual elements, I think, more so than you do in a commercial studio where you've got a, an ensemble in there, uh, you know, and, and you're, you're tracking live, uh, maybe. Like, I think a home studio where you're, you're really focusing on each step individually of the, of the recipe 
more intently, you do spend more time on the, the, the individual sound in that way, um, at least with the producer and with, with other people in the room. So when I was doing sessions for like Rick, uh, Ruben or Don was, those were more ensemble based. And a lot of the things that I would have honed um, on the records with Tony would play in to those sessions, you know, so there would be some sound or some, something that I did on a, on a record that, uh, that I would go for, uh, you know, in, in on those other, um, albums and, and, uh, in, in those sessions. Right. And then in, in, in your own productions, um, I hear a lot of, um, experimentation, but I also, I think it's a combination of that and like the patience and diligence to like, you know, keep working past, you know, what you're figuring out what could be better. You know what I mean? And, uh, did, is Tony, was, was Tony also of that mindset? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think Tony and, and, and a lot of the, the producers that I've worked with all kind of have that in mind. It's like, you know, you don't, you don't really want to, um, you don't want to like drive somebody into the, into the ground at the same time. I think it's, it's relatively non-destructive to, to ask somebody uh, or everybody like, Hey, does you guys mind doing one more, you know? And, and like, that's, that's not so much the hard part as it is just having the sense of when it's not better, you know, like, or, uh, when you've gone past it or when something has happened where you realize that that was really special. And I know it was not what was intended, but we've got to keep that. And like, you know, just trust me. When I was starting to do sessions, it was also like the pro tools and logic and everything that, that, that was all pretty, um, well-established. Like we weren't doing a lot of records on tape to do another take is pretty non-destructive you don't lose the, the other one. You don't have to choose between what you've done and what you might do on the next go around, you know, right. an interesting way in which digital recording allows you to, uh, experiment, but it does not really help you sharpen that, that, uh, sensibility of like, making decisions and, and saying like, let's do one more. Um, or, you know, we have it, that was it, or we had it five takes ago, you know, let's stop. I feel like it's easy to get lost with so much of the modern technology. Cause you have, you almost have too many options. Um, and you can just keep layering until, you know, you completely lose your mind. Um, then you listen to like a Motown record and there's like two mics and it's all the magic is in the players and the playing, you know, I think what you guys did on, um, notes with attachments, like kind of utilizes the best of both though, in this, in certain ways, because there's obviously live playing in there, but a lot of manipulation, um, in a cool way. Was it, was there a lot of, I mean, like you said, was it all like, I know you said with voodoo, you know, first, second, third takes, were you guys capturing a lot of this record in in a few takes or were you guys spending a lot of time, you know, kind of refining the live performance? Yeah, well, both actually, Um, depending on the track. Yeah. I mean, for instance, you know, when Chris came in, when Chris Dave came in um, and worked and did the drums on uh just wrong he he knew exactly what he was doing and we got it first take yeah and then with other tunes i guess we would hone parts a little bit you know so it wasn't a question of getting the the take it was more about getting you know the music that we wanted from the players that were coming in um and just honing the parts until until they just fitted just right you know Tell me a little bit about the Larry Golding's uh, connection. Had Pino, had you played with him much before this? Yeah, on, on a couple of things. Yeah, we actually, yeah. we actually met quite a number of years before. Um, yeah, Larry's just incredible. I mean, his musicality, amazing, so musical, and so much knowledge, and yeah, was the perfect um, guy for us, really, for this record. Had you worked with him, Blake? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Like, well, I mean, the first time I actually played with him and, and met him was I was in high school. And, uh, right, right. and we had an extracurricular jazz band in high school. Um, that was kind of like a reduced version of the, the school jazz band in, in the orchestra. Right. 
um, the drummer of which is was Lewis Cole. Uh, oh wow! We went really? to high school okay. together, and oh, uh, I love Lewis Cole. And his his dad, Steve, was the director of this this um, this band. Steve is an organ player and a big Larry fan, and uh, and they they knew each other. And right. in this ensemble, we we used to do like we would do like Schofield tunes, and I think like some Chick Corea tunes, and um, Wow, that's a school band. No, that's proper. It was it was really <laughs> right. cool. It was really right. hip. Lewis sounded like I mean, he could play those songs um back then. He was in like eighth grade. And he's left handed, so he had this open grip and it was just like so cool and he was so funky. And uh and his dad would play organ usually at, at these gigs that we would do at like uh, bake sales or can't remember the you know, we would be doing a lot of school events and stuff like that, but deep private parties, you know, it was Malibu. So things happen. And, uh, so, uh, we did a, like a winter formal concert or something like that. And with Larry as a special guest and he came and he, uh, wow. he played organ and, and, and on stuff with us. And, uh, and it was incredible. Uh, but then maybe, I don't know, I guess it would have been like 10 years or something later. I started going to gigs around town. He was playing at little organ trio things. And, and maybe I, he might have played on the John Legend record. I'll have to go back and dig in and see when the first time we worked on something together was. But we've just done a few sessions here and there. And he's just unpredictable. And that's what I... Yeah. And, and kind of down to, like, some days in the studio, you, you just want... You just want to treat like I want to. I want to have somebody come in, and before they do, I'm gonna I'm gonna like put, hook together some really weird chain or some crazy sound, and just have them come in and react to that. And he's just like he doesn't get thrown yeah. by anything, you know. It's, Absolutely he, he, right, right. He's like a cat that's gonna land on its feet, and uh, yeah, every time. Yeah, and so so <laughs> I think a lot of it was just that, like having him come down and and like you know, Larry, what do you think of this? He might, he's in that same category of what would Larry do is like as Pino in terms of, well, I also, I mean, I think you, if you look at your credits, Pino also of like all the stuff that you've done, you can play pretty much in any genre and you're well-trusted, <laughs> you know, I think, you know, cause like Larry can play jazz like anybody. I remember he was on the Maceo Parker life on planet groove record. I mean, that was like, we used to listen and he would do all the left hand bass and all of that, like soul jazz funk. Oh my goodness. He, he's a, he's a killer bass player. He's a yeah. killer on the left hand. Yeah. But then he played, you know, he toured with James Taylor and, you know, I think, you know, really both of you and, and Larry have that ability to kind of, you know, play in anything, you know, as complex harmonically or um, as it can get, but also know how to serve the song. And when you have those, that combination, you know, that, that is the best possible uh, studio <laughs> situation. Yeah, uh, And you can hear that on this record. I think that this record has, there's so much depth harmonically, but it grooves um, really hard. And, um, but it never gets like, um, stagnant um i think that's that's a it's it's such an interesting take and i think a lot of people are um gonna feel that way is there uh i well obviously right now there's not a lot of shows but I, i'm hoping uh you guys plan to play some of this live yeah no doubt you got, yeah absolutely no doubt. okay good yeah 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 okay, good. A lot of fun. yeah i mean before yeah. everything shut down we were really looking forward to um this is like the first record i think i've been a part of um fundamentally that I've actually been excited about the shows for performing. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, like the, the touring of just knowing that the, the shows are going to be so fun that the, uh, that, you know, there's no way that, um, that the tour would be a bad experience, you know? And, and again, it's that kind of like, there's a little less pressure on it being about like, it's not like touring a solo record for me because it, it's not like I'm going up on a stage and playing my songs and singing my songs. It's like, I, I get to go and inhabit this, these, these pieces of music that are actually just as much a part of, um, who's playing drums and who's, who's, who's 
Clanghorns and, and Pino. And uh, it's, it's like the compositions are going to change from night to night so naturally right. because Absolutely. this music is, it's so um, ephemerally put together in some cases that uh, it's, it's really going to develop on a nightly basis. And, well, I appreciate you guys taking the time um, uh, to talk with me. And uh, yeah, man, I, I really hope that you guys do this live um, selfishly so I can I can come see that. Oh, um, thanks. But uh, yeah, huge fan of both of you guys. And, uh, you know, I'm, I was so happy to see you guys making this record and collaborating. And it was beyond the expectation that I set pretty high to begin with. So, wow, that's um, great. Congrats on, on the record, and thanks again, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks, Eric. Great talking to you, man. I want to thank Blake and Pino for being on the show. Very cool to connect with them and to hear about their creative process and the making of this album. Uh, I hope to have them individually on the show again because there's so much more to talk about. Uh, meanwhile, go check out the album Notes with Attachments, and you can find it on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you find your music. Eric Krasno Plus One is hosted by me, Eric Krasno. Executive producers are RJB and Christina Collins. Audio production by Matt Dwyer. Produced by myself and Ben Baruch of 1111 Group. All original music is by me, and most of which are instrumentals from my album, Telescope, under the artist name Kras. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email Kraz plus one at Gmail. That's K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E at gmail.com. Send me some questions. Maybe I'll answer them on air. Send me suggestions of other guests you'd like to hear on the show. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.